Hello! little business before we start the show. If you'd like to support the podcast, find us at anchor.fm forward slash magical podcast. We're also on Instagram. There's some links there. If you'd like to share the podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. There's a lot of easy links to do that on our Anchor site. Give us a subscribe there. Give us a subscribe wherever you listen. And if you find anywhere to rate and review us, that also gives us a lot more opportunity to share what we're doing over at Magical. So thank you so much for your support. And of course, check out the show notes where you can find links for our guests material and support our sister podcast, Lilith's Left Hand. You can follow them at lilithlefthand.com. They have a new website. Hope you check them out. Take care. Well, welcome back, Magical Relatives. Um, I'm your host, Paul V. And Jessica V. And I have, well, what it feels like to me is a return guest, because uh, Amy May, who's been on uh, my other podcast, Revolution RN, where we talked to, now Amy is a, well, I, I invited Amy on because she's a death doula and grief counselor at Whitebird, and uh, you just passed your boards. Congratulations. I did. I'm licensed and official. Oh. Hooray. Yeah. So exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. For yeah. people that don't know, could you tell us what Whitebird is? Yeah. It, it would be, it'd be yeah, cool. for sure. Um, Whitebird has been around for 50 years, 50 plus years. Um, it started as um, really a response to the fallout from counterculture back in the 60s of folks who were kind of outside the perimeters of establishment who had needs that everyone has, but weren't able to get them met in the same kind of ways or didn't have the same kind of access. Um, And so it started as um, a crisis walk-in center for um, all, all sorts of stuff, like counseling, legal advice or legal support, Lots of folks who were unhoused or um, like you know, like psychedelic uh, experiences, um, all, all sorts of things. And so, so that's where it started. They had oh, they did um, some medical care too for folks who weren't able to access traditional or you know um, kind of systemized medical care. Um, so that has evolved over 50 years to expanding into who we are today. 30 years ago, CAHOOTS was developed. So we, uh, Whitebird is the umbrella agency that CAHOOTS operates under. And if you're not familiar with CAHOOTS, we're getting national attention right now. We're a mobile crisis um, assistance team that works as part of public safety along with uh, Eugene Police Department and Springfield Police Department. And we respond to mental health or non-criminal crisis emergencies. Uh, we work in tandem with a crisis worker and a medic. And so, yeah, we, we try to reduce the burden on police that is not theirs to carry, really, when it comes to mental health, especially. Uh, I say we because I'm also a CAHOOTS crisis worker. Um, I do that part-time. My main gig is end-of-life counseling and, and death doula work. Anyway, um, with Whitebird, so now we've expanded to nine plus programs. We have over 200 paid employees where it started as a total volunteer organization. Um, We have a medical clinic, dental clinic, counseling department, substance use department, 
Um, we have our front rooms team that has been operating throughout the pandemic, uh, providing supplies to folks who were unhoused. We have cahoots. We have um, a department who helps with getting folks signed up for insurance, health insurance. We have um, a team that helps navigate care coordination and like helps people get to doctor's appointments if they're unable to do that themselves. I know I'm forgetting a bunch, but that's the gist of it. So we do a lot of things. That sounds amazing. It sounds like you guys um, do everything. Like well, a- we, the, the, the idea behind Whitebird initially and what we still try to do and why I get the privilege of, of doing the work I get to do is that we attempt to identify the gaps in the system and where people are falling through the cracks and create programs, create support, help reach those folks. And we um, have, I think for decades, said that um, we are beneath the safety net. So not for the folks who are falling through, you know, multiple layers uh, and don't have access otherwise. So um, it's my work came to be because I ended up at Whitebird through my MSW internship. I didn't want to work with homeless people, um, but I had a connection to someone and met and like, okay, this is where I'll do my internship and recognize, oh, there is this whole population of folks that don't have access to end of life care because of challenges involving all all sorts of things. Um, And I think Paul and I talked about this last time, but so after my internship, I ended up uh, developing the end of life counseling program and pitching that and have I've gotten nothing but 100% support from my colleagues and agency, and it's it's exciting. I feel really grateful to be there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Oh, there we go again. Okay, well, so it's interesting to think about grief and like the fact that like or like grief counseling and end of life support being something that you might not have access to. Like somehow, grief is something we don't really embrace so much mm-hmm. well anywhere but you know here and i'm familiar with here and it's something that as a you know as a hospice nurse i'm constantly introducing to a lot of families and kind of running them through what that looks like how it's not like an end right type of experience and and then you're uh working for an organization that is it's just weird to think about that it's it's like a it, it's like sort of a, I want to say like a it, it's almost like it's treated like it's a privilege to be able to do it. It's not something that we necessarily make time for. And yet you're working for an organization that's like trying to fill in the gaps for that so that it's not like a privileged experience necessarily. Yeah, well, I um that's maybe not no no i i think i get what where you're going with it though i mean we i don't know we all experience grief and not just related to the death of our people or loved ones or whatever i mean we're experiencing grief over the endings of things or relationships or lives or whatever you know throughout our lifespan Uh, i don't think I don't think that we are well equipped 
to know how to deal well, recognize it and uh, address it adequately. And so it's funny when, when you announced me initially as a grief counselor, I felt myself have a reaction to that. Um, mm -hmm. Because grief counselors typically, we're talking about grief after an event, like something has happened and now I'm grieving. And it's just not that linear. Um, and so it's funny, like, as I'm thinking about this reaction I felt and like what grief actually is and listening to you describe this, um, we are, we're, we're grieving all along. And, and with my work with folks who are dying, they're grieving, like as soon as someone gets a terminal diagnosis, I think some that a really intense grief process can begin there potentially um, because that means the loss of all of all of this potential life that they might have envisioned or the potential opportunities for different things or you know I still want to do this and this and this and now I can't because I'm looking at a very limited time um, and I do have clients right now that I'm working with um, for for this very thing and and it's not just anticipatory grief and that I'm going to die soon or my loved one is going to die soon like because we haven't they haven't died yet so we're not grieving their death but we're grieving the loss of all of the possibilities around yeah yeah there was something that came up like uh so recently uh I, we admitted my grandfather to hospice and um, we, it, it was, it was an, it was a strange experience because he was one of those people who was like, well, what if I do this? What if I give it a shot and try to like re rehabilitate myself or, you know, can I just sort of come to understanding with that? Like I am going to embrace mm -hmm. like a death and dying process. Okay. So yeah. So, okay. So we're, uh, so I was, uh, so we, so my, so my grandfather was like, had an acute event and he was in the hospital and didn't quite fit the guidelines based on, he just didn't have the medical history to admit him to hospice. Not like the diagnosis. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so he went to, so he's like, so we'll try rehab. And he was so hopeful. He was like, well, okay, well maybe, maybe like if I get, if I go through a uh, rehab, I'll be able to you know, start walking again and I'll stop my decline. And he went through the whole experience and he just didn't, he just didn't get better with all that physical therapy mm -hmm. uh, with that time, with the 24 hour care, all that things. And then when he came and then, and he was just, so he just experienced that, that time where he was just uh, like where that door was closed to that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it took time to experience that grief, went back home and then, but took the time to like, say, take time to grieve that, that door closing. Yeah. And then was able to just move on and he's doing so much better now, you know, like he's like, okay, well that is not a possibility. Now I can just move towards like that death and dying process. And I don't have to think, well, what if? That, that mm -hmm. was like on for him. Um, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think it's really super interesting because peop we don't 
learn. I mean, it t- it took me till I was 40 to learn how to even have boundaries, to under- like to have a better understanding of energy at all whatsoever, of my feelings, of mm-hmm. identifying that I um, – how do I feel? That took me so long. So right. how are we supposed to, you know – understand how to grieve, not only for other people, but for ourselves. That's Mm -hmm. intense. And so I would imagine that a lot of people don't have that space and there's not somebody there to open that space for them, with them to do that process, which in the kind of work that I do seems extremely important. Um, for people's spirit to be able to open up to finally like feeling that part of yourself. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. What do you do, Jessica? Well, I used to do research, but now I just teach people how to um, sit in silence and (laughs) wonder, not just, you don't just, that is like (laughs) the word. Yeah. I I'm actually really love it. And I think that it took me a really long time to understand my feelings. So mm-hmm. I really think that that work that you're doing and opening that space for people and allowing them to access that part of themselves in that mm-hmm. process is so beautiful. And um, I don't know, I think we should all have immense gratitude for that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. No, I think that you have hit something really important. And it's also part of my own um, path of growth and self-discovery is um, this reconnection to ourself. And there's so much in our culture that is designed to disconnect us from ourselves. Yeah. Um, For optimum functioning of our economic system or governance, Um, I'm not going to get on that soapbox, but so much of it relies on us being disconnected from ourselves. Um, And then if we're women, that's a whole nother story, Uh right, Of of all of the conditioning and training around disconnection. Um, So you're right. It's so important to provide space, a safe space for people to start exploring that and to, and to start to reconnect with themselves. And I think what I do is I do that at end of life. Um, and my hope, um, and actually in my experience, folks who have a really rich spiritual life and um, a lot of personal interconnection with themselves the work that I've done with them looks vastly different than work I do with other folks who have had complex trauma histories or not. And this is where you say the privilege of being able to access support to address all of that stuff. Um, so, So in the end, we end up with all of these feelings of fear and anxiety and a loss of control, even more so than at other times in our lives. And um, that's often what I'm helping folks address. 
I was, I was just wondering if you feel like oftentimes when you get to this process, you do meet your meeting with people, um, that this is really their first time to be able to make space for their own feelings. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or they're not, they're just, um, no, they haven't even understood. I don't like the way that sounds. They have not had the opportunity to even think about it as having feelings. It's just like all the stuff that's happening and I don't know what to do with it. And so there are lots of layers to peel back. Um, and it's, it's hard stuff to sit with. It's hard to peel back those layers. It's hard to sit with ourselves and acknowledge that we have feelings and that we hurt. Um, so, I mean, we work really hard to protect ourselves in so many ways um, from the hard feelings. And so, um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of folks who have never had an opportunity to, I don't know, just sit in a space with someone who cared or was able to... I don't, I don't know that that's true, but who was able to interact in a way that felt supportive and caring? I think so many of us do love and care and want to offer support, but we're dealing on our own with our own problems and our own conditioning and our own like onion layers. So that when it comes out, it's definitely not supportive because we're projecting our emotional pain onto other people and it's back and forth all our lives. And I think um, that it, it, now that you've brought it up, it does feel a bit of privilege to be able to take the time to really get into yourself and to be able to identify your feelings, acknowledge them, feel mm -hmm. how you feel, allow yourself to take space when you need space. Um, it's Maslow's hierarchy, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's absolutely that. When you're fighting for um, survival or to feed yourself or your family or to stay warm or even to you're struggling to keep a job and pay your bills, when you are struggling for these basic needs and for just maintaining existence, there's no energy to think about feelings. I mean, it's just everything is devoted to surviving. And so when you have, when we have those needs taken care of in a way that we can find comfort in, like, so we can ease into that then it opens up this other space for, okay, what else is going on on these other levels of our, I mean, like deeper levels of our psyche, really. I cannot imagine the energy that you go through that cycles through you as mm -hmm. a counselor, as the person opening up the space, as the person holding that space open for them. I can't imagine the engine that must be you that is allowing this cycle of energy to constantly go. Do you have um, a practice that helps you feel like you're able to, to create that space in yourself? Yeah, it's um, part of it is just my own. Per well, part of it is just my personality, I think. Um, and 
my, I don't know, it's, it's like just not personality, that's not the right word, but just who I am. Because death is scary and uncomfortable for a lot of people. And for whatever reason, it's not to me. I don't know why, but it's not. And I'm grateful for that. Um, I do have a, a really dedicated spiritual practice. And part of that is, you know, my, my centering work and checking in with myself, lots of self-reflection. And it's, that's so um, integrated with the work that I do and the training that I've had in client-centered approaches and um, being present to the situation and in the moment, whether it's, you know, with just myself or with my loved ones or with my clients. Um, but I do go through kind of, a, I have a ritual when I'm about to, if I'm at a client's home or if I'm about to get on the phone with, um, with a client for a session, um, the stopping and pausing and, and turning inward and grounding myself, feeling my feet, trying to clear my center um, and be open to either receive or support or hear or just being present to this to the moment and to that person um i mean it is part of my morning rituals too with um you know i have sit in meditation every morning and it's it's part of that ritual too of like clearing this path like going through my chakras and clearing this path just to be open to to receive the words that are supportive or whatever it is, because this, this work that I do is not of me. It's not like I come up with all this great stuff. It's something way beyond me. The, the mystery, the source, God, whatever we want to call it. Um, and I have the privilege of getting to walk in and be present with someone and then maybe help connect that somehow. Um, and of course, this is something, the experience of being with myself, of being with others, it's beyond words, really. It's indescribable. So all of these words I'm saying feel really inadequate. Um, but by the look on your, your face, I think you get what I'm talking about. <laughs> I completely understand. Um what you're talking about and like clearing space. And it reminds me of one of my mentors um, always calls herself and, and what we're trying to do a hollow bone. So you can mm. yourself out so that that energy can move through you so that you're not doing the thing. Um, right. that the thing is happening through you allowing it to happen. Yeah. And that's very much what it sounds like you do in your own personal practice, which I think is so beautiful because often we hear things and they sound so esoteric, right? right. And you're like, what does that even mean? I'm a vessel. I'm a hollow bone. Oh, right. a vessel. And then right. you start living it, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, click. I get it. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, and sitting in the moment, you know, if someone is actively dying and I'm sitting with them or, you know, sitting with 
my client and their family member trying to uh, discuss or explore, really get into like the complicated dynamics around um, like medical aid and dying choices or something like that. It's, it is, um, I mean, certainly I have an, a lot of training and a lot of study under my belt and that all comes into play. So it's, but it's, it's this, um, I don't know, it's this really amazing relationship of all of these pieces coming together to help support someone's life experience or whatever is happening there. Yeah. Or death experience, yeah. rather. <laughs> yeah. Both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's so, yeah, it's even, it's, it's just like trying to, it's it's not just hearing with your ears. You're you're trying to really like take in everything that's going on with this person with all your senses so you can kind of answer the questions that they're answering for or you know to just sit a lot of times yep. finding it's just I'm if I, I'm afforded the time a lot of times me, just me being present while they're working through things has been it's like the most important thing and it's and yep again it comes to that like that skill of grieving and um people sometimes are learning on the fly in these in these types of instances oh okay. i'm hearing you again i i have a question because paul said just use the words skill of grieving and so but and i'm not trying to to pick um but i i, I would like to ask you if you think grieving is kind of like an innate thing that we have within ourselves that we didn't know we had access to, kind of like um, that we did, weren't allowed to have access to, or do you think that we have to build it as a skill? Does oh, that make sense? Good. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> question and very complex, I think. Um, I, there's so much of, there's so much of ourselves that we're cut off from. Um, grief, I don't know, you know, I've not spent a whole lot of time, oddly, with the work that I do, thinking about grief. Um, so I got into this work because my mom died suddenly. And so I, I definitely have experienced grief and I actually, I did spend a lot of time thinking about it. But what occurred to me, I remember thinking this shortly after mom died, was there's no way to make this better. Like there's no silver lining. There's no cup half full. This just hurts and it just sucks. And I really want to think of, like, if I can think about how to get through or make a plan, then I can, like, control it somehow. But I think that um, all of that is an avoidance of feeling it, of feeling the hurt. 
Um, so I don't think that grieving is necessarily a skill. I think that the skill comes in learning how to notice, identify, acknowledge, honor. I think those are all things that we can develop practices around. Um, because I, th I think that we are grieving in so many ways and just not recognizing it when it comes out sideways as projection or whatever our coping style is. Yeah, I, I feel like we're constantly, we're continually on these paths, right? Um, and I don't remember what I was going to say because I got all a little bit out of my head with that sound. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know Paul can edit it, so hopefully you can edit me being like, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> how dare you be human? I know. <laughs> how dare I sound like a demon? <laughs> I, I am really interested, and tell me if, if it's, I don't know if this is an okay topic, but um, you have been with people when they pass away, correct? Mm -hmm. And have you ever, I have heard people say that they have had near death, it's not a near death experience, but have had um, experiences spiritually, or I don't know what word you want to put on it, because the words are never appropriate, right? They just don't right, give right. the magnitude of, of feeling. But have yeah. you ever been with someone and then had that experience kind of encompass you as well? I'm not in a way that I would call a near-death experience or like I saw behind the veil or something. I've, I've, I've not ever had that. Here, I'll talk from my own personal life and then I can reflect on my work. So when my mom was dying, um, I was really... And, Forgive me if I talked about this in our last conversation, um, but she had had a, a brain aneurysm or where a, a vessel burst in her brain and they had to like, uh, do all kinds of stuff. So essentially she didn't have brain activity or it was really minimal uh, and she was on the ventilator before we decided to take her off. And I went through this whole, all these existential questions, like who is my mom and where is she right now? And is she the person that would talk to me and say, Hey, Aim, I love you. Is that my mom? Or is like this body my mom? Because the person who could have said, I love you was gone. Her brain wasn't functioning. Like she, that was never going to happen again. But my mom, like her body was still there. And it just, it was all very confusing trying to make sense of what was happening in the moment with all, you know, this incredible rush of emotion, you know, when this kind of tragic event takes place. Um, and so the one thing, I was in a Taoist group at the time, and I had a book that I was reading through. And so I had the thought, okay, well, I don't know where brain, well, I know that her brain, my mom is not her brain necessarily, just based on my own spiritual sensibilities or thoughts. 
um, that, sh that we're more than our brains or more than our bodies. So, okay, I know that there's energy in her body still. I mean, her heart's still beating. There's some energy here. So I want to just be with myself and be with her in a way where I'm just energy here with her energy and sit in the room with her for a really long time, or it could have been not that much time. It felt like, you know, how weird how time bends, but holding her hand and just going to that energetic place to be with her. And that was a really magical experience for me. Um, she, it was before, and like I said, it was before we took her off the ventilator. So I don't know. I don't know what was happening inside her body at that point or how near death she was or whatever, but um, that profoundly impacted me. As for like when, when people actually die, um, typically what I sense is more what I'm feeling is emotion. Um, I really want to have like some magical, like, uh, I don't know, phenomenon that happens. But um, when I'm present, I've, I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude, so much gratitude um, for having the privilege of being there with them of having walked their path with them, even for however short a time it is. Um, the beauty of being in that space and beauty, Paul, you can speak to this probably. I mean, it doesn't look beautiful in the ways we might think. It might be gnarly and like fluid is involved. And But what I almost always see is this, um, care and love that is, I don't know, it's just so profound. It's, yeah, it's beyond words. So I don't know. I did not give a very good description of that, but it's, it's, it's just amazing. I, I was wondering if you identify or would say that you think um, that you are clairsentient, that you're somebody um, that feels, you know, how some people are very visual and some people are auditory and that you really have that, um, like an empathic feeling thing going. No, I would not say that I identify that way. Yeah. And, and I'm, I, I'm really glad, actually, that I'm not. Because I don't think that I could do the work that I do if I was. Um, yeah, especially, well, my work on cahoots especially, because it's some really intense stuff often. Um, and crises, where, I mean, I have, I've been on scene uh, for a number of suicides uh, after, you know, the body was discovered. And the amount of grief that family members are feeling then, I, I definitely could not do the work that I do if I was feeling that. Um, I'm able to be more neutral and and hold space for all of the ways that they're spilling out. Um, so no, it, it's, 
Um, I, I do think that I certainly think that I'm good at empathizing with folks and just trying to connect with them on a really human level of just having experienced pain too and, and pretty deep, intense pain. But yeah, I don't necessarily feel their pain in that moment. Yeah, it, I, I wonder because some of us are so much more um, easily um, pulled in to other people's emotions. And I yeah. think that Paul is not that way. I am and not. it really helps him. In, mm-hmm. in, in this work and so um sometimes i hear people talking about death doulas and and you know if they also identify as an empath that doesn't mean you're not empathetic but it, you know what i mean if right yeah I'm, I'm always wondering like oh that sounds really hard yeah i think it, like yeah I mean, when, when i describe it in myself it's like i can practice empathy but i'm not it's not just not on all the time and all right open up to that if, if you need that I'll come sit mm-hmm. in that with you but there's clear boundaries that I set right people because I just I have well I have myself to take care of I have a family to take care of and I I am actively not bringing that home I'm I'm yeah I am doing a daily practice I am doing practices in the moment like you're talking about with grounding and things like that just and keeping myself energetically clear so that, you know, so I don't like have to carry that with me all the time. Cause you, it's okay. I feel like it's okay to carry that, mm-hmm. especially in a crisis moment. And I'm sure you've done it as well. And it's great. It's really great to be able to do that, but I just don't want to carry it all the time. And sometimes it doesn't right. need to be carried all the time. Right. Yeah. I need to be able to walk away and do the next thing because this is my job. Yeah. Um, um, and it, yeah, it happens often. I actually, where I, you know, go see a client, and if I'm, if I know that they are near death, or I'm planning on being there for you know, a planned death, um, with death with dignity or something like that, then I clear the schedule for the rest of the day. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to add on to stuff like that. But I definitely have, um, you know, been on Kahoot shifts where we sit with um, a successful suicide or their loved ones or, or, you know, whoever, and then say, okay, goodbye. I'm writing that report and I'm having to go on to talk to the next person for another like eight hours on shift. So being able to hold, hold boundaries, um, compartmentalize in the moment, but then find ways to process whether, I mean, I think that physically doing something is important. I'm not great at that part, <laughs> exercising and, um, but I'm learning, I'm, I'm learning and doing better at um, accessing those benefits, but writing and, and checking in with myself and, and doing I don't know, kind of finishing that cycle, uh, that stress cycle there in some way, shape or form. Yeah, it's it's so important for us to be able to keep doing the work and not burn out. Yeah, and it's 
Yeah, I just I, I really appreciate this kind of conversation because, uh, you know, a lot of people that listen to the, the podcast that Jessica and I share are people who are actively caring for others, holding space for others, working with others. And they're sometimes, they're you know, we're kind of exploring like topics like this, like grounding, setting boundaries, and people don't really think of it as like a strong spirit like it's not like the exciting part of a spiritual practice but like right but it's like pro it's probably like the basic some of the most these are like the easiest things are the, are the things that we're not necessarily attracted to when we're exploring all these topics of like the great beyond and what all this is but like really the simple answers really are the are the most important and if you can just get good at those all the rest of it's really a piece of cake right yeah well how it's like the tools to get through things um, right yeah well first and foremost how am i feeling right now checking in how am i feeling in my body right now am i feeling tense am i feeling relaxed am i feeling antsy so i'm being able to check in with that and that's something that um you know and with the int i try to i try to do that on my own and I'm improving that practice over time. I am by no means a master at it. I'm such a novice, um, but it is something that we do, I think really well on Kahoot shifts and supporting our partner um, and checking in on what we need, being able to take a little bit of time if we have really intense calls like that. Um, where we can take a moment and reground ourselves or like shake it out or, you know, do something like we need to eat or we need to drink water. It's a really good partnership there with the crisis worker and medic to care for ourselves as we're working through all of this or witnessing and observing and holding space for all this really hard stuff. I love that. I, I really appreciate built into your structure that that self-care because so many places um that aspect of taking care of yourself is so it's not secondary even it's 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 not even a consideration um because yeah. it's all about productivity and um uh, well, it doesn't really as if we can separate ourselves from productivity right and right. it's completely impossible it's such a silly notion and so like working in those locations where it's built in that you check in on each other and that not only like how are you feeling how am I feeling how does it right. feel right now because that's one of those things that I think a lot of people go through their entire life and never thought that they were even able it's one of those things you, you don't know what you don't know right um, and then all of a sudden you're like oh man I feel even if it's something like my shoulders are tight you know, right. and then you just start paying attention. And the more you pay attention, the more you notice. I love that you guys talk with um, each other about those things and really um, nurture each other's ability to uh, communicate. Mm -hmm. I, I really think that that I'm glad that Cahoots and Whitebird is something that lots of other cities are looking at and talking about because yeah. you've been such a, an, I mean, it's been decades. 
And so you right. really learn how to build all this, this this stuff into the system because it's about people. It's not about productivity. Right. And I mean, and I am of no use to you if I am a mess. And, and, and I mean, that's, it's something that Carl Jung talked a lot about um, that, you know, all therapists need to have their own therapists. We need to be working on our own stuff or else we're, you know, processing it with our clients, which is completely unethical. So it's, it's imperative that we are self-aware. Um, and it's something with Whitebird on like um, every facet of the agency that um, the like the training that we go through just for um, learning about the agency and what we're about and how we work um, this is integrated into it and we have systems like you said where we can tap someone out like oh like you're I can see that you are escalated or dysregulated somehow and we don't have to say anything in the moment. It's just agreements that we have made where we're like, hey, friend, I'm going to tap, tap you out right now. And they have to step back from whatever the situation is. And then later, after whatever was happening um, has concluded, then you can go back and revisit what was happening in that moment. But it's when we lose touch with ourselves and how we're feeling, if someone else observes that we are dysregulated, we give each we give each other permission to excuse us from that situation, uh, and also we give ourselves permission to step out of it, which is re really hard. When I mean the work that we do, we feel strongly about it and a great sense of responsibility, and it is not easy for someone to say, "Okay, you need to step aside for a moment." Because no, I got I can do it. I, it's so important, but wherever I am, I'm not able to do it with like as my best self. Can you imagine <laughs> if we all lived, all of us, in a world on a regular basis, where if we saw someone like our partner um, starting to go in the direction where they were like their energy is moving in a direction where they're going to get into a space they don't want to be. Right. And you could just go like rub their shoulder and, and tap them out and, and it not be like, what the F do you don't tell me how to feel instead, right. because that's us helping each other. But, right. and most of the world, I mean, in my younger years, if you would have told me that, I'm like, I would have been super offended. Right. <laughs> and I, well, there's this sense of like, this sense of um, failing or like this idea of some sort of like the perfect counselor that I want to be or whatever, and that there's no space there for any other part of experience. And so, oh, that something else is coming up. It's time to step back. And also that like that we're already healed. We've already done all of our work and everything that affects us will never affect us again. So I will never get sucked into that thing. The ego friends that I have made and integrated with myself will never pop right. back up in charge. Of course right. they will because we're people. And so like, it's this, yeah, it's like allowing ourselves to have a human experience, to allow ourselves mm -hmm. like doesn't matter how much meditation and unconditional love that you are pouring into yourself 
there are times where our you know our shadow selves or our ego selves are gonna take control and wouldn't it right. be nice sometimes it takes a really long time to notice that that's happening mm-hmm. and it would mm-hmm. be so nice if we were allowed to like empathetically and lovingly just tap somebody out and just say oh right. I, I want to kind of live in a world like that yeah well I mean it takes the agreement first yeah making that agreement and then practicing it um whether it's with your partner or your kids or family or work or whatever and that's we just have a lot of we have a lot of time practicing it at the agency. So it, I mean, and it's not, it's, it's never easy. You're right. Cause it's human. It, it's, it is just us being human and lots of feelings, but man, it, um, my partner and I went to a barbecue at a friend's house who was a coworker. And I think actually most everyone who was there were also white bird, um, coworkers. And my partner John <laughs> at one point was like, Oh my God, I cannot believe what it is like sitting in this conversation with a group of counselors where everyone is like, oh, tell me more about what you think about that. Or like, it seems like you're feeling this certain way. Like there was all of this um, empathy and active listening and reflection. He was like, I've never had an experience in my life. And of course, it is not that way all the time. We are not always like that grounded and able to communicate beautifully, um, you know, because we're human and we have emotions and we get swept up in them too. Uh, Wybert is no, you know, agency of perfection, that's for sure. But um, I think that we have a good model. Yeah, and all of that, all of that allowing people to have to be people and to have feelings and then to go somewhere they didn't want to go and then to make mistakes and then to process and to still be okay with that person that's so yeah that's so cool I am so um I wouldn't want to say the word jealous because that is like has a negative connotation but I uh, like hearing about that community and I I think that's such an awesome uh goal for all of us to have a community of people that you are allowed to process with and really Mm -hmm. can have that emotional support. Not that you have to have it all the time, but boy, if you do need it, you know where to go. Right. Right. And we definitely are a family and function like a family (laughs) with all the positive and the negative attributes of it. Um, But it does help. I think it's, it's, really beneficial to and and just to like segue back it's it is um really supportive and um and reflective of my counseling style and being able to show up especially when I'm working with families or whatever that um all of the dynamics and personalities and experiences and trauma that all individuals are bringing into a certain situation Um, When we can like slow the process down, slow it down to what's happening right now. And I can see that you are like feeling really agitated or you seem really anxious or, you know, I'm hearing, I'm hearing some like sense of fear, something. Um, So yeah, it's, I, it, it feels like a good, it's a good life practice, but it definitely is um, also our 
professional practice and my personal professional practice. Well, it sounds like your your professional practice gives you a lot of space to really learn, like really learn about yourself and others. I think it sounds really fascinating. It is. But learning is hard because I don't always like what I find out about myself. (laughs) I uh, also feel that way. (laughs) Sometimes I wish myself would shut up. (laughs) Well, so I'm I'm actually curious. So like what, what, you know, just to kind of get a better sense of what's going on with you, like what is your work, what is your work like? what is what is what what is a, a day in the life of you know your work whether it being you know between i guess a couple of well you have you have you wear a few hats for the organization but like what is it yeah. like now with like these days because i think last time you checked it was pretty new and it was pretty mm-hmm. new for all of us and we're trying to all figure out how to better maneuver around you know with all the restrictions in life that are happening right now. So what is, what is your work looking right now? Um, I'm able to visit people in person again. So that's wonderful. I'm not seeing everyone in person, but easing into that and depending on what the circumstances are. Um, but that feels really good to me. I mean, I want to be seeing people in person. Um, but so, yeah, day in the life it's different every day. Um, but I, I spend a lot of time either with clients or I do, I tend to do a lot of, I don't want to say case management. Some of it is case management, but coordinating with other agencies and workers, um, who are connected to an individual, um, and looking at the various like levels of issues that they have, whether it's housing related or um, like connected to mental health issues, um, shoring up supports around that. Um, yeah, I yeah, I spend kind of a like well, I don't know what the ratio would be, but. Um, I like to spend more time actually talking with my clients and and having sessions, but then there's all there's all of the other like connective pieces of having conversations with other folks, family members who are reaching out to me for various reasons, or um, like I said, the coordination of services, and I am have a lot of meetings at Whitebird as well, uh, and then paperwork, which. I really hate, but there's a lot of paperwork involved in clinical counseling. Um, so, yeah, and, and I and I try to do. Oh, there's this other side. I I'm developing a a couple of different groups. So I did do a group. I think this might have been after we talked last. Um, I. Put together a group called Four Things to Do Before You Die. And um, so doing various like marketing or whatnot to get groups going or just the coordination, you know, all of the coordination that goes into 
starting something like that up, you know, the appropriate um, information that you want to share or uh, what kind of, you know, con informed consents do you need and all of that. Uh, I'm getting ready to start a group on near-death experience for support for folks who have had near-death experience. So uh, lots of emailing people and gathering information for that and trying to figure out the best way platform, you know, to, um, to facilitate a support group and a time when we're not yet back to meeting in person and developing more programs for death education. This is something that's really, really important to me and why I'm doing the groups, the, the first group that I mentioned for things to do before you die. Um, I think the number one thing, well, I'll just tell you the four things and this was what we talked about in the group, but then I really want to pull this out and make each of these things, I don't know, give them their own kind of venue for exploration and discussion. But one is just talking about our feeling, exploring feelings and thoughts and fears around death and dying uh, and creating some space for that. And then the second was talking about death and end of life care preferences with your people you know, your care providers, whatever. The fourth thing, or I should say the third thing, and I'm not really sure where it fits in there, but is accepting death as a natural part of life. We laugh like, where does that belong really? Do we have to accept it before we can ex like explore our feelings or does that happen after we explore? But while we're talking, it's kind of one of those floating principles. And then the fourth one is planning, going through and actually creating your advanced directive um, or uh, a living will, or, you know, all of the various pieces. Do I, I want um, to be cremated, or do I, do I want, you know, to be naturally composted, or what's out there, all of that, like the logistical kind of stuff. So I'm spending a lot of time right now. COVID put a, uh, put a really hard stop on all of that, and so I've been trying to develop and figure out ways to have those conversations while we're stuck at home. And but also I really want to start pulling that out so we can um, start meeting in person when and if that if and when that happens soon, hopefully. Uh, I feel really, really passionate about this, about having conversations about death and dying long before we think we need to have them. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Do you, do you have these groups just in not I, I don't mean to use the word just do you have these groups in the community locally or are they uh, larger groups that you could have um, with uh, is it something that you're doing in your personal practice or it's something that Whitebird is doing it's something I've done through Whitebird so far okay. um, and just in the in the community um, it seems like the best place to start. Actually, you know, I've started, um, we did an advanced directive workshop, a small one, um, with my colleagues at Whitebird. And it was, it was um, not strongly attended. <laughs> so I want to keep up, you know, one of my CAHOOTS workers said one time, wouldn't it be great if all, the entire CAHOOTS team had their advanced directives on file. And I was like, yes, that would be great. Hmm, maybe I should do a group with just my CAHOOTS coworkers. 
and like start at home. Well, I mean, even I guess that's like mezzo level because my home is like sitting down with my partner and my family and, um, and they all definitely are clear on my wishes. Um, and then, yeah, doing it within my own organization and then in the broader community. Um, I have a lot of technology fatigue and so it hasn't happened as greatly as I would like. And other people also seem to have lots of technology fatigue. So there's not as much um, active participation and partially because people don't like to talk about death and dying. So it, I don't have people lined up to join the group just yet. Um, well, also, I don't know if this is true, but it does make me think like death and dying is all great to think about sometimes. And like, you can think about it if it's a little bit further away, but with COVID, um, death and dying is really on everyone's mind and it's in the forefront yes. of your mind. And then like, you know, people are superstitious and scared. And, and so right now everybody's mm -hmm. already thinking about it. And like you see on the news, if you watch the news, you think that you might die at any moment. Um, so right. going to a death and dying class or learning, uh, learning that is just, I think for some people too close right yeah. now, it feels easier if you, if it's nebulous. Um, yes. <laughs> Yeah, you're totally right about that. And I think it actually has affected my my motivation to do stuff like that, honestly. Um, I mean, just because I, I'm okay with sitting in the room with someone while they die, I am not immune to a fear of death. Um, or especially like fear of my loved ones dying. I mean, that's, that's real still. I mean, I'm probably in good part because my mom died so young. And it scares me to have it happen again. I don't want my people to die. Um, and so, yeah, my work is like when it's something that's kind of separate. I have, you know, I have a lot of personal stuff that I'm working through for sure. You and everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it, it's, I, I mean, I just, yeah, I just love having conversations with you like i just feel like uh you have such a like an interesting perspective just from your life experience going through the death of your mom and carrying that over and then offering it to so such a community that a hasn't had you know the edu you know the education level to kind of like explore the topic of death and dying and then not only that but like enhancing it with like a whole gamut of you know we're you know really like taking you taking care of yourself as a caregiver and the whole organization really trying to like integrate into that like how much more space are you able to hold for you know a population of unhoused a population with lacking resources uh, I, I just I just think everything that uh, you're doing right now I just I love having these conversations Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoy it too. It's funny, just as you were saying that with my life experience, um, and especially relating to this era of COVID and trying to deal with death and grief, um, I lost my grandma on December 20th. And I talked about her in our last conversation. She was in a facility, in a um, an assisted living facility, and she had been on hospice she, death was not imminent for her um, at the time. It actually came at a surprise when she died. She was 90, 
95. Why am I spacing that? She was born in 25. So yeah, she was 95 years old. So it, it, it wasn't a you know, great surprise, but um, she had been placed on hospice after going to the hospital pre-COVID, I think. And was like, I don't ever want to go to the hospital again. And she did have congestive heart failure, which qualified her. Uh, you were talking about with your grandpa not having the qualifying diagnosis. That qualified her for hospice. Um, and so there was just like the slow, you know, to be expected decline. But so she died on, on December 20th in Oklahoma. And in the facility where... Typically, there were no visitors. No one had, they had had window visits, but my dad and his wife got to be there with her when she died. Um, they were able to come in that morning and spend a good number of hours with her and be present, which is such a gift. Um, but so that happened in December, and here I am in April. I have not been able to gather with my family. We do have plans in May to have her memorial, but that's five plus months that I was sitting in this place of all of these feelings of losing this. I hate to use the word losing, but in a great way it is because physically she's gone and I've lost the ability to connect with her on this physical realm. But um, yeah, all of this time, and it was really, really hard after she died and not having my family to sit with and hug and talk about like all of the rituals that we have around death are really supportive of our grieving process. Uh, and not being able to have that was really challenging to me. And I think that it, this, the effects of that showed up in ways that weren't necessarily obvious. Um, and, and in the middle of like winter in Oregon anyway, we all have seasonal affective disorder. And, sorry, that's a great assumption to make or gener generalization, but um, <clears throat> in the middle of a pandemic, just so much stuff. But um, so yeah, now that we're all getting vaccinated, we're gonna be able to celebrate. And there's part of me that really wonders, like how does this look different five months after the fact that we've all been sitting with this grief and energy and sadness? And I, I tried to do my own kind of ritual around it, but it's, it's not the same. Yeah. I think that that is something really important to bring up and not that there is any solution or anything, but this is actually something that is going to be affecting a significant amount of people in the next mm -hmm. coming years because um, there is a process um, familially for so many people uh, after a death that didn't get realized um, for thousands and thousands and thousands of people and so mm -hmm. there is going to need to be space for those people to heal and to go through some processes and we as a society and a culture are going to need to think about what that is going to look like and how we are going to support our community members i lost an uncle during covid had nothing to do i mean it was not a covid death um but 
they they didn't get to have a normal memorial service or any of those things and um it was really hard for for a lot mm-hmm. of my family members and so I, I I'm glad you brought this up because it is something to think about how important death ritual is for us. And, and we don't think about it that way. I think right. because we don't think of ourselves, not everybody, but so many of our culture rather mm-hmm. doesn't think of us as spiritual beings. Right. Um, right. And we need those processes. And so this is going to be a really interesting um, window research Mm -hmm. on this topic and and what happens with people and how we can help each other heal right but but, and one of the things that concerns me most is our I I saw it with myself and I'm somewhat you know self-aware and I have a great counselor and I'm surrounded by mental health professionals and I still it was coming out sideways um so how does that, like the, the, the greater population, like you're saying, in such profound numbers, um, there's a lot of, a lot of healing that we're going to need on so many levels. But yeah, I, the death rituals leading up to and following the rituals and ceremony are so important. And I don't know how we've lost that, or um, I think that we still do it, but I don't think that we really honor it like it deserves. And how can we, then I think that's a big part, not a big part, it, it is a big part of why I do what I do, because death is sacred. It's the sacred rite of passage. Um, and because we're scared of it, and we pushed it back to, you know, away from us for so long. Actually, so long. I don't know. I say that from, like, my point of reference, of, you know, on the timeline. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that people were dying in homes and lying and, you know, um, until they were buried. They were right there with their peoples. Not that long, actually. But that kind of acknowledgement and honoring of um, what our, how our contribution to the world changes as we age and as our bodies deteriorate. We have this, I hear from people all the time who are elderly or have lost physical capabilities who just feel useless. Um, And so much of that this cultural idea of productivity that when you're not producing in a certain way, because good grief, the folks that I talk with, I mean, we are, I think that they are producing some amazing energy and amazing connection. And it just looks, it looks different than like, it's not a tangible product, but um, that's a whole different soapbox. But yeah, so so bringing in the ritual and the ceremony, even if it's just like me going to visit with people and them reminiscing about their life and how that is an amazing process to witness. And so as someone is nearing the end to go back through and reflect on 
on their lives and what they wish might have been different or what they're really proud of and um, making peace with with you know both things and uh, it's all it's all part of that and it's it's really it's a really beautiful thing but yeah when in the midst of a pandemic folks especially if they were in facilities or something often weren't getting those uh, opportunities well I just want to say I am sorry that you lost your grandma over the past year and I truly hope that you will get be able to put together that ritual or that feeling for you and your family and kind of I don't want to say heal because there's no wound to heal right right but to feel it and to exist with that with your family in the way that that makes it feel um what is the word accepted or Mm -hmm. yeah to get yeah through to that point it's um yeah, it's it's sad that I can't call her on the phone. And so it is, it's kind of coming around to that place of um, of acceptance or just like, this is the new normal, is that I have to find new and different ways to communicate with her. <laughs> yeah, and that is a a really beautiful and fun new project that you get to have. I know that right. might sound weird to people or like, but I mean it like having these communications and, and um, relationships with yes. spirit is really how we know that we're not alone in the universe. Yeah. Everybody will die, but spirit totally. will not. Yep. So I actually, Um, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on this because it's, I think that it's a really important part of my work in working with people at end of life is helping to build that bridge. So, so once they're gone, let's, let's start to explore what that new relationship can be like for your loved one and doing some sort of projects together or, you know, creating something or, I don't, it can even be like, we have these two rocks and we are performing this ritual and this ceremony around it so that when you're, after you're gone, I can hold this rock and be in that moment with you. And that helps develop what this new relationship is to their spirit. Even if we're talking about just holding a rock in our hand, which seems like the most mundane thing ever, but it can be, it can, it feels like to me, it can bridge time and space. And I mean, I, it does, it can sound really woo woo. It's not like I'm expecting to like, hi grandma and her respond to me in the same way that we were when she was in the physical realm. But like, what does that look like? And I had that realization with my mom. Um, I don't know at what point. It was maybe a year or so after she died and just trying to make sense. And um, it occurred to me that my mom and who she was to me now was really synonymous with love. Because she loved me fiercely. And 
and I take that love and how I love my own child or how I love, you know, any of my people, um, there's part of her that's living through that. So in that way, that's also the, like what this new relationship is and how we identify. And I think there are lots of things that we can do before someone dies and things we already are doing, obviously, um, just in interacting with our people but like some real intentional activity that can be really um, comforting and supportive to, to a family member after their loved one has died. Yeah. I love the, that, that like idea of that care and love that you keep, in continuation with your ancestors Mm -hmm. loved ones and that thing that you're talking about like and then you're you're it's the continuation for your the descendants that are like the future you know like it's just that it's that just continual like you know feeling of linear time and like can just continuing that on so that it, it can like continually that love and caring can continually live on yeah I love to think of it too the way you were talking about it with your mom and that just you know speaks to um like ancestral healing and practice and then you can see that fierce loving mother's energy coming from this heart space to your heart space to your Mm -hmm. kid's heart space and it is going back and forth through this line through all of your family back and forth and allowing that energy to move between you guys and so you're not alone and you have all these beautiful supportive people and I'm so amazed and enthralled that you do that with other people that you really allow other people and help them build those connections i have some of my best friends are rocks come on i love rocks (laughs) (laughs) i'm kind of obsessed with rocks too (laughs) amy thank you so much for talking with us today i really enjoyed having this conversation with you you do such amazing work thank you so much for being a part of our community i really uh, look forward to be able to meeting you in real life someday. Agreed. Thank you too. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'll I'll do it as often as you ask. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. Thank you. We so do much. too. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna hit stop here.